Uh, The Old Testament reading for today comes from Isaiah chapter 65. We'll read verses 17 through 25. Isaiah 65, verses 17 through 25. And then the sermon text will be Revelation chapter 21, verses 1 through 8. Isaiah ministered long before Christ came. And God did speak through Isaiah the prophet uh, in this way, offering this good news to him and through him to the people of Israel. And here is this beautiful promise found in Isaiah 65, starting in verse 17. God says, For behold, I create new heavens and a new earth, and the former things shall not be remembered or come into mind, but be glad and rejoice forever in that which I create. For behold, I create Jerusalem to be a joy and her people to be gladness. I will rejoice in Jerusalem and be glad in my people. No more shall be heard in it the sound of weeping, and the cry of distress. No more shall there be in it an infant who lives but a few days, or an old man who does not fill out his days. For the young man shall die a hundred years old, and the sinner a hundred years old shall be accursed. They shall build houses and inhabit them. They shall plant vineyards and eat their fruit. They shall not build and another inhabit. They shall not plant and another eat. For like the days of a tree shall the days of my people be, And my chosen shall long enjoy the work of their hands. They shall not labor in vain or bear children for calamity, for they shall be the offspring of the blessed of the Lord and their descendants with them. Before they call, I will answer. While they are yet speaking, I will hear. The wolf and the lamb shall graze together. The lion shall eat straw like the ox. The dust shall be the serpent's food. They shall not hurt or destroy in all my holy mountain, says the Lord. Isn't that beautiful? And then we go to Revelation chapter 21. We look at verses 1 through 8, and we actually see the fulfillment of this particular prophecy and others like it. Revelation chapter 21, uh, verses 1, 1 through 8. Here we read the words of John the Apostle. He says, Then I saw... A new heaven and a new earth. For the first heaven and the first earth had passed away, and the sea was no more. And I saw the holy city, New Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them, and they will be his people, and God himself will be with them as their God. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes, and death shall be no more. Neither shall there be mourning, nor crying, nor pain anymore, for the former things have passed away. And he who was seated on the throne said, Behold, I am making all things new. Also he said, Write this down, for these words are trustworthy and true. And he said to me, It is done. I am the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end. To the thirsty I will give from the spring of the water of life without payment. The one who conquers will have this heritage, and I will be his God, and he will be my son. But as for the cowardly, the faithless, the detestable, as for murderers, the sexually immoral, sorcerers, idolaters, and all liars, their portion will be in the lake that burns with fire and sulfur, which is the second death." So far, the reading of God's most holy word, we pray that the Lord would bless the preaching of it as well. Uh, Brothers and sisters, the history of redemption can be compared to a rose, which 
exists first in seed form, then after springing up from the earth does develop until it finally buds and then fully blossoms. Uh, Here in Revelation chapter 21, we are given a glimpse of our redemption uh, fully blossomed and mature after Christ returns to rescue His people and to judge all who are not His, He will establish, we are told, a new heaven and a new earth. And do you see that the most important characteristic of this new heaven and earth is that it is the dwelling place of God. God will be with His people. He will dwell with them and they will be His people and God Himself will be with them as their God, the text says. Uh, This is the final state for all who belong to God through faith in Christ. This is the consummation. This is the telos or the ultimate aim of our redemption in Christ Jesus. For God to dwell in the midst of His people in a most immediate, in a most intimate and everlasting way. This is the end result of the redemption that is found in Christ Jesus. The dwelling place of God will be with us. He will dwell with us. He will We will be His people, and God Himself will be with us as our God. And so here we have an image of the fully blossomed rose of redemption. Uh, Indeed, it was this kind of existence that was offered to our first parents in the Garden of Eden. Uh, Truly, uh, they in their uprightness enjoyed face-to-face communion with God. But remember that they were in a time of testing, Before them stood two trees, the tree of the knowledge of good and evil and the tree of life. And so to eat of the one meant the curse of death and broken relationship with God. To eat of the other meant that the couple would enjoy life eternal, consummated, confirmed, and an unending life. The time of testing would then be over. Their communion with God would grow even more intimate and they would have been established in life, being never again threatened with the pains of death that would come by eating from the tree of testing, that is, the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. To put it uh, in a little bit different way, the fully blossomed and mature rose of Revelation 21 was offered to the first couple in the command to eat of the tree of life and to abstain from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. But as you know, uh, the rose was rejected. Instead, the couple did choose the thorns. But God did not abandon Adam and Eve, nor their posterity, but He showed grace to them. Uh, This He had determined to do from before creation, for it was then that the book of life was written, remember. uh, God, by His grace, even before He created the first man and woman, determined to save a great multitude from every tongue, from every tribe, and from every nation, and to bring them safely home into Himself and to that eternal inheritance that was offered to the first man and woman. This He would do, not through the obedience of man, for that way to the celestial city had been closed off by Adam's sin. No longer could man earn eternal life by law-keeping, for all are now born in sin and are by nature children of wrath. That way to the tree of life is closed off to the children of Adam now that he has chosen the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. And so the question is, how then would God save his elect from amongst the children of Adam now that he had fallen? And the answer is that he would do it by sending a Savior, one born of the woman, and yet one who was more than mere man, being not of Adam's physical and corrupt seed, but the virgin born 
Son of God. His name is Jesus the Christ. He is our Redeemer. He is our friend. But the Christ did not come immediately after man's fall into sin, did he? Indeed, many thousands of years passed between the time of the fall and the arrival of the Christ. Indeed, many hundreds of thousands of people lived and also died before the Savior of the world appeared. But God's grace was not unknown in those times. God's grace was known in the world. For God promised, even to Adam and Eve, that He would send a Savior, one who would defeat the serpent who had deceived them, one who would atone for their their sins through the shedding of of blood. Uh, This they knew then. And in this promise, some of them did indeed trust. So the rose that Adam and Eve had rejected was still present in the world, not fully mature and blossomed, but in seed form. The seed was the promise of God concerning the redemption of, That would be accomplished by the Christ. The rose of redemption was in the world immediately after the fall, but in seed form. Uh, From the time of Adam and Eve to the time of Christ, this seed of promise uh, slowly grew and it matured. Uh, The promise that was first given to Adam in Genesis 3.15 was reiterated to Abraham, to Isaac, and to Jacob. It was then received, preserved, and propagated in the time of Moses and David. Uh, Sometimes this promise was reiterated in the form of direct prophecy. For example, a a repeated refrain that we find throughout uh, the pages of the Old Testament is this. God says to His people, I will be their God and they will be my people. And indeed, this does sum up God's plan of redemption. His purpose was and is to redeem a people for Himself, people from all the nations of the earth. His purpose was and is to reconcile sinners to Himself. Sinners who had been alienated from Him by their sin would be brought back. His purpose was and is to rescue sinners out of the kingdom of darkness and to bring them into His kingdom where Christ is. Is Lord. And so, time and again, we find these words of promise in the Old Testament. I'm doing something even now, God says, where I will bring about this ending. I will be their God, and they will be my people. This has always been the end goal of redemption to bring about the kind of life that was offered to Adam in the garden but was rejected by him, a life accentuated by an intimate, unbroken, immediate, never-ending communion bond between God and His people. This is our redemption. This is life eternal. It is about God dwelling with us in a most immediate way, in an unending way. The promise of God found in these words, I will be their God and they will be my people, was present in those days, not only in word, in the days of the Old Covenant, not only in word, but also in the symbols or types of the Old Covenant. So sometimes it was reiterated in the form of direct prophecy, where the prophets did say, Thus saith the Lord. But at other times we see that that symbols or types that pointed forward to greater realities yet to come were given uh, to God's people. We could identify many of them. But consider, for example, the temple that was situated in Jerusalem where the glory of God did reside under the Old Covenant. Uh, What was that except an instance of God dwelling in the midst of His people? 
And so the promise, I will be their God and they will be my people, did find a kind of partial fulfillment in the in Old Covenant Israel. God was indeed their God, and they were indeed His people, and He certainly did dwell in the midst of them, in that temple made of stone. There He resided, His glory resided in the most holy place, and the people of Israel enjoyed His presence and did come to worship Him in uh, that place. But clearly, Old Covenant ethnic Israel and their temple of stone was far from the end goal of God's redemptive purposes. I hope that you're able to see that, brothers and sisters. That was not the end of the game. The Old Testament from beginning to end makes this very clear. No, instead, the temple of God in Israel was a type that pointed forward to greater things yet to come. Indeed, the glory of God did truly reside there from time to time. That is not in question. But the prophets were clear that these things symbolized or prefigured greater things yet to come. They pointed forward to the Christ and all that He would accomplish. Uh, Certainly God's aim was to redeem not one nation, but but people from every tongue, tribe and nation on the planet earth. This is what God said to Abraham when He first called him, saying, I will bless those who bless you, And him who dishonors you I will curse. And in you, Abraham, all the families of the earth will be blessed. Genesis 12, 3. Indeed, the prophets also spoke of a day when the earth, uh, when when the temple of God would far uh, exceed the glory of the one uh, that was present in Israel. Clearly, God's plan was to make all things new. God spoke through the prophet Isaiah saying, Behold, I create new heavens and a new earth, and the former things shall not be remembered or come into mind. And so here we have a glimpse of the end goal of God's redemptive purposes, not the gathering together of one nation and not His dwelling in the midst of them in a temple built by stone, His glory residing within the most holy place, but a new heavens and a new earth where His glory does fill it all and all the nations of the earth, His elect from them, are gathered together to dwell with Him in a most immediate way. This is God's plan of redemption communicated throughout the pages of Holy Scripture. Under the Old Covenant, God was accomplishing His purposes. The promise of God concerning the redemption that would be accomplished through the Christ grew in clarity. It matured until when the fullness of time had come, God sent forth His Son, born of woman, born under the law, to redeem those who were under the law so that we might receive adoption as sons. That is Galatians 4, 4 through 6. It was here then, at the first coming of Christ, that the rose of God's redemption budded and began to blossom. It began to blossom, it did bud and began to blossom when Christ first came and the fullness of time had come. God sent forth His Son to actually accomplish the redemption of His elect from every age, from the days of Adam and Eve, even to the end of time. Christ did accomplish the redemption of all all of His elect And then His redemptive purposes have continued to develop even to this present day and will until He returns. So think of it, brothers and sisters. It was at Christ's first coming that the kingdom of God was said to be now at hand. It was at Christ's first coming that God did tabernacle amongst us in the flesh. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. Does this sound familiar to you? John chapter 1, verse 1 And then in verse 14, And the Word became flesh and dwelt, 
or tabernacled amongst us. And we have seen his glory. Glory is of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. Do you hear temple language coming through here then in John chapter 1, verse 1, and also verse 14? Here we see that which the temple pointed forward to, the physical temple of Israel, had come. Christ Jesus did tabernacle amongst us in the flesh and in the incarnation. In Christ, you are the temple of the Holy Spirit, Paul repeatedly says, for the Spirit of God is in you. In Christ, you are now seated in the heavenly places, for God raised us up with Him and seated us with Him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus. It was at the first coming of Christ that the new creation began. When does the new creation enter in, brothers and sisters? We're tempted to say only at the end of time after Christ returns, but the New Testament says else uh, otherwise. Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old has passed away. Behold, the new has come. What is Paul saying to the Corinthians there in 2 Corinthians 11 too, except this? The, the redemption that Christ has accomplished, has already brought the new creation into the world. Even now, the rose has budded, and it is beginning to blossom as the Lord does redeem His people uh, through faith in Jesus the Christ. Friends, all of these things have been inaugurated at Christ's first coming. They have begun, but they will be consummated when? When the Lord returns. Uh, This is why I have said that the rose did bud and begin to blossom when Christ Uh, first came. When Christ returns, all of these things that were begun at His first coming will be consummated. They will be finished. They will be completed. The rose of redemption will be fully blossomed and mature. Indeed, it will be then that all things will be made new. It will be then that the marriage between Christ and His bride will be complete. It will be then that God will dwell with His people in a most immediate, intimate, and permanent way. It will be then that death, pain, and suffering will be no more, nor the tears associated with these things. All will be made new. All will be finished when Christ does return. Uh, This is what Revelation chapter 21 describes to us. The rose of redemption now fully blossomed and mature. That is what it describes. Look at verse 1 where John says, Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth, For the first heaven and the first earth had passed away, and the sea was no more. Uh, Clearly, God wants wants us to remember Isaiah chapter 65, which I read at the beginning of this sermon. There God did promise concerning these things through the mouth of Isaiah the prophet. For behold, I create new heavens and a new earth, and the former things shall not be remembered or come into mind, we read in Isaiah 65. God is saying that which I promised long ago then through the mouth of the prophet Isaiah is here in this vision portrayed as finished. That's what we're reading in Isaiah in Revelation chapter 21. We're seeing a vision of the things that were promised to through Isaiah the prophet completed. John, after seeing the dissolution of the first heavens and the first earth, was shown the establishment of these new heavens and the new earth. Uh, Notice that John says, and the sea will be no more. Did that catch your attention? I'm not sure if this is meant to be taken literally, as if there will be no ocean in the new heavens and the new earth. I enjoy the ocean. It's a beautiful thing, isn't it? And so I began to wonder, is this to be taken 
literally. I began to read on this subject too. Is this to be taken literally? Will the new heavens and the new earth be only land and no more ocean? And if so, where will the rivers flow um, that, that exist within the new heavens and the new earth? Where will they end up? Will there be no more lakes then? Because when does a lake become an ocean? I do not know um, where, the, where the line is drawn there. But consider a few things. I do not think this is to be taken literally. Uh, one, remember that we are in the book of Revelation, which communicates truth via symbol. That we have to remember, and, and, and that principle we have to consistently consider and apply when appropriate. Two, Consider that the oceans and seas were a part of the original creation. When God created the heavens and the earth in the span of six days and he did rest on the seventh, what did he create? He created both land and sea. So there is not something inherently evil about the oceans. And in fact, I think we are to expect that the new heaven and new earth will be not altogether different from the current heavens and earth as we know them. Do you think about heaven in that way, brothers and sisters, the final state? as being very much, very much like the current heavens and earth as we know them. I think we are supposed to. Uh, this corresponds to what the scriptures say concerning the connection between our natural bodies and the bodies we will have after the resurrection. Think with me for just a moment. Our natural bodies uh, will die and will decay in the grave, but those same bodies will be raised so that for all eternity we Uh, do stand in the presence of God as whole persons, body and soul uh, reunited, recognizable persons, so that you are you for all eternity, body and soul. This is what Paul says in 1 Corinthians 15.42. He says, "So So is it with the resurrection of the dead. What is sown is perishable. What is raised is imperishable. It is sown in dishonor. It is raised in glory. It is sown in weakness. It is raised in power. What is he saying? Except for that the same bodies that do go into the grave, those perishable bodies, will be raised imperishable. Uh, Just as it was with Christ our Lord. He did go into the grave. He did truly experience physical death. But he was raised, Jesus the Christ. Uh, He was recognized uh, by his followers. He did walk in the midst of them. And I think we should expect the very same thing for the heavens and the earth. Uh, The scriptures uh, really do compel me to think of the new heavens and the earth as corresponding somehow to the current heavens and earth, only greatly renewed and also glorified. Uh, They will be rendered with fire. They will be dissolved just as our bodies will be dissolved. But the new heavens and new earth will be raised in glory, if you will. Three, consider the symbolism of the sea in the rest of the book of Revelation and also the rest of Scripture. Remember that it was in Revelation chapter 13 that we saw a beast. And where did this beast rise from? The sea. Also, the sea was just mentioned in Revelation 20.13 along with death and Hades as being the place of the dead. Consider also the way that waters do in the scriptures symbolize that which threatens human existence. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. The earth was without form and void and darkness was over the face of the deep, over the face of the waters. And the Spirit of God was hovering over the face of the waters, uh, the waters of Genesis 
1 verses 1 and 2 made life on this planet impossible for humans. God then divided the land from the sea to make a place for man. When God judged the world in the days of Noah, what happened? Except for that the waters again covered the earth, after which God again brought forth dry land for Noah and his family. It was a kind of recreation. Think also of how Israel passed through the Red Sea. The waters threatened them too. They trapped them. The army of Pharaoh on one side and the Red Sea on the next. And what did God do to deliver his people except he parted the Red Sea and the people of Israel traveled through. The Egyptians then followed and those waters closed in over uh, the Egyptians and swallowed them up. And think of the way that the sea threatened the disciples of Christ when they were in the boat with him. But what did Christ do except call out and with the word he calmed the stormy seas. I suspect that this is the meaning here in Revelation 21, verse 1, uh, where we are told that there will no longer be a sea in the new heavens and the new earth. The absence of the sea signifies, symbolizes that all that is threatening to the life of the people of God will be absent in the new heavens and the new earth. Uh, That is the thing being signified here. These three Reasons that I have given lead me to take that interpretation. Many commentators also agree. When we come to Revelation 21, 22, we're going to read these words. John says, I saw no temple in the city, for its temple is the Lord God, the Almighty, and the Lamb. I will argue when we come to that passage that indeed there will be no temple in the new heavens and the new earth, no temple of stone. And some at this point might accuse me of being inconsistent. Do you see why? Here John says there's no sea in the new heavens and the new earth, and I say I think that is symbolic. There will be oceans and land and mountains and rivers and streams, just as there is today, only glorified and renewed completely. But when we come to Revelation 21, 22, and John says, I saw no temple, I'm going to say, that's to be taken literally. There's going to be no temple of stone that that confines the glory of God to it, but rather all of creation will be His temple. He will fill all. In truth, there is no inconsistency, for it is the testimony of the rest of Scripture that points us in these directions to interpret these two passages In this way, remember that there was no temple of stone in the Garden of Eden, in God's original creation. In fact, we are to think of the whole of the original creation as being one giant temple, if you will, not of stone, but a place where God did reside with His people in a most immediate and intimate and and, and, uh, not permanent, but, but in a most pronounced way. In fact, we are to think of the whole of the original creation as being a temple with Adam as priest who enjoyed the immediate presence of God. And a temple of stone was not built for a long time even after the fall of man. And when it was built, it was clear that it pointed forward to greater realities yet to come. When Christ came, He claimed to be the temple. He abolished the temple of stone, pronouncing it to be desolate. And He did say that the church was the temple of the Holy Spirit. And so the trajectory of the history of redemption is taking us not towards the rebuilding or reestablishment of a temple of stone, but entirely away from it. 
In fact, the trajectory is taking us towards the reestablishment of that which was enjoyed by Adam in the Garden of Eden, that is God dwelling with His people immediately, not in a temple of stone, but filling all creation. And so do you see how it's the rest of Scripture that does help us to interpret these different aspects in the book of Revelation? We're dealing with symbolism here, of course, and it's the rest of the Holy Scriptures that help us to interpret these symbols correctly. Notice that this is the very thing that is described to us in the following verses, and by this I mean God dwelling in the midst of His people immediately. Look at what John says in verse 2. And I saw the holy city, New Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. Who is the bride of Christ, friends? The church is. The church is the bride of Christ. He is the groom. The city of Jerusalem, therefore, symbolizes the church. Christ will not be wed to a city at the end of time but he will be wed to his people, to his church, whom he has redeemed with his blood. This is nothing new. Remember that Christ said to the church in Philadelphia, way back in Revelation 3.10, The one who conquers, I will make him a pillar in the temple of my God. Never shall he go out of it, and I will write on him the name of my God and the name of the city of my God, the new Jerusalem, which comes down from my God out of heaven, and my own new name, He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. And so he does here to the church of Philadelphia make this promise that if you persevere, if you conquer, you, Christian, will be a temple, a pillar in the temple of God. You will be a permanent fixture there in the new Jerusalem. Is this to be taken literally, brothers and sisters? No. But it does symbolize the fact that you will be in my presence and I will be in your presence for all eternity if you would simply persevere in faith in Christ Jesus. In the new heavens and the new earth, all will be the temple of God. Christians who conquer will be made pillars in this temple, temple, metaphorically speaking. And you see that Christians are also the new Jerusalem. In the new heavens and new earth, Christ will be wed not to a city, but to His bride, who is the church. And what do the temple and the city of Jerusalem signify except that place where God does dwell in the midst of His people? That is the point of it all. In the new heavens and earth, God in Christ will dwell in the midst of His people. Verse 3 proves the point, proves that this is the proper interpretation, because God Himself says that this is the proper interpretation. John then says, I heard a loud voice from the throne. Who is it that is speaking except God Himself? And what does God say? Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them and they will be His people and God Himself will be with them as their God. God Himself says this is what all of the symbolism is pointing to. This reality, God dwelling in the midst of His people. This is the thing that makes the new heavens and earth heavenly. This is it. What is it that makes the new heavens and new earth heavenly? Is it the streets of gold, brothers and sisters, that you look forward to the most? You know? Is it the fact that there is no pain or suffering anymore? I do look forward to that, of course. No, the thing that makes the new heavens and the new earth heavenly in a most pronounced way is God with us. Us enjoying our God and relating to Him, communing with Him in a most intimate way for all eternity. This is what makes heaven 
heaven. This is the thing that Christ did accomplish for us. He came to redeem us. He came so that we might have the forgiveness of sins. He came to make us holy and pure so that we might be suitable then for life with God for all eternity. And I want you to look at the tenderness of our God. Look at verse 4. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes. And death shall be no more, neither shall there be mourning, nor crying, nor pain anymore, for the former things have passed away. Those things, that is, death and mourning, crying and pain, they belong to this present world. But this world will pass away, the new heavens and the earth will be established, and these things will not be brought into the new heavens and the new earth. They will be no more. Notice that the same God from whom earth and sky fled away in Revelation 20.11. The same God who was seen sitting on His great white throne to judge great and small according to their deeds is here portrayed as a loving Father who wipes away the tears of His beloved children. Do you see the tenderness of God towards those in Christ Jesus? Do you see also the severity of God? He is a righteous judge who will judge at the end of time. But that same God is also tender and compassionate towards His children. Death and mourning, crying and pain belong to this present evil age. They will have no place in the new heavens and earth. I wonder if you have thought much about the new heavens and the new earth. I'm not encouraging you to sit around and do nothing but this. We do have work to do in this world. We have a job to accomplish. But I think it is right for Christians to, from time to time, and probably the Lord's Day would be a really good time to do this, to reflect upon the new heavens and the new earth. I think it is right that we have an appetite for it that we develop within ourselves a longing for it, that we begin to see the things of this earth as being strangely dim, not so appealing, not so appetizing, especially as we compare them to the glory uh, that is to come. It is right for us to, especially on the Lord's Day, to think about these things, to stop from our labor, to stop from our busyness, and to reflect in our rest. Upon this rest, this great and eternal Sabbath, that is, to come. I think this passage should be very dear to us, and it should compel us to persevere in Christ and to strive to enter into the new heavens and the new earth by the grace of God. This passage has become dear to me. I, um, those of you who were at the memorial service uh, yesterday heard me read it. Um, it. It was such a precious thing. I I was going to, to visit John TZA, who passed uh, about a week ago, uh, Mike and Jana's father, Tony's husband. And I was driving, and I literally had to pull over uh, before I got to the house, thinking, what should I read to him? I want to read Scripture to him. I want to pray to him. And I've read Scripture to him before, so I didn't want to read the same thing. And uh, given that it was clear he was near to the end of his life, I thought, I, I really want to choose this passage well. And so I just began to think and to pray about it. And then this passage came to mind. I thought, this is the thing that needs to be held before our brother in Christ. 
as he's coming up to the moment of death. He needs to be reminded of the new heavens and the new earth. He needs to be reminded of the tenderness of God the Father, that he will compassionately wipe away every tear from our eyes. He will indeed put away death and pain and mourning and suffering. It will be gone. He will call us sons when we do stand before him. Of course, this is true of the new heavens and the new earth that are still yet to come, but it is also true for those who pass from this world and do stand before God in the first resurrection that is in the soul. And so have you thought much about the new heavens and the earth? The final state, notice, is not merely spiritual, as some assume, but it is physical. Heaven that is the place where God and His angels now dwell along with the souls of those who have died in Christ, and earth will at the end of time become one. How wonderful, therefore, it will be to live on this earth as God offered it to Adam. We will enjoy this world, renewed, as whole persons, body and soul, but without sin and without suffering, without death, All that does cause us to mourn and to cry will be abolished. God will dwell with us and there will be no potential for us to fall. And so in this sense, what we will experience in the new heavens and new earth will be greater than what Adam and Eve ever had. It will be paradise, but it will be paradise established forever and ever. Think of it. Think of it next time you're outside working on your house. And you look at those eaves that you just painted and you think, I'm going to have to paint them again 10 years from now. You you, you see? Or as you go to work and you earn that paycheck, which is a very godly thing to do, you think, I'm going to have to work more to earn another paycheck because this one is going to disappear. And do you want to know something? When I pass from this world, all of this stuff is going to go to other people. Did you hear what Isaiah the prophet was saying as he spoke the word of God to the people of Israel? Don't you look forward to the day when the new heavens and earth come where you will build houses and you will inhabit them forever and ever and another will not inhabit them. You will inhabit them and you will plant vineyards and you're going to eat the grapes from that vineyard. You're going to drink the wine that it produced and your enemy will not or another will not. You see, that was the hope that Isaiah was pointing forward to It's the hope of the new heavens and the new earth. It's the glory of it. I look forward to it, brothers and sisters, and I hope that you do too. You should think often of it, and you should lay up your treasures there and not here where moth and rust destroy and where thieves break in and steal. Verse 5, And he who was seated on the throne said, Behold, I am making all things new. Also he said, Write this down, for these words are trustworthy and true. Did he really need to say that? It is the word of God, isn't it? But yet he says it in order to strengthen our faith. Write these things down, John, for these words are trustworthy and true. Uh, This is the word of God. He himself does say that they are trustworthy and true. Therefore, the Christian is to live for this world which is to come, for it is sure, it is certain. Verse 6, And he said to me, It is done. So though the things described here in this passage are yet in our future, clearly they are not here yet, God is saying it is as good as done. He himself guarantees it. And God knows, for he himself is the Alpha and the Omega, the first and last letters of the Greek alphabet. That means he is the beginning and the end. He is the creator who stands at the beginning of human history, and 
He is also the one who will bring everything to its consummation. And here is his promise to the thirsty. I will give from the spring of the water of life without payment. Here the free grace of God is emphasized. The one who is thirsty will drink from the spring of the water of life and he will drink freely without having to pay a dime to have it because of God's grace. In verse 7, a similar promise is given. The one who conquers will have this heritage. He will inherit this. And I will be his God and he will be my son. Here is the purpose, brothers and sisters, of the book of Revelation. It shines through here in a most direct way. It is to encourage the reader to conquer in Christ Jesus, to overcome, to persevere. We are to persevere in faith, knowing that those who do persevere will by no means be turned away empty-handed. They will drink from the spring of life freely. They will have this heritage that is the heritage of the new heavens and the new earth as they are here described. The greatest blessing of all is this. The overcomer will be called God's son. Every tear will be wiped away from their eye by the Father. Verse 8 concludes with this this threat, this sobering word. But as for the cowardly, the faithless, the detestable, as for murderers, the sexually immoral, sorcerers, idolaters, and all liars, their portion will be not in the new heavens and the new earth. They will not inherit that, but it will be in the lake that burns with fire and sulfur, which is the second death. It is probable that this list of sins or qualities is directed not at those outside the church, but those within who compromised in the face of pressure and of persecution. They are called cowardly and faithless. Why? Because they turned when faced with this pressure. They left the faith. They proved that their faith was not true. They are called here detestable. They are the ones who did murderously betray their brethren They were more concerned with having the pleasures of this world than the pleasures of the world to come. Their religion, therefore, was false. They committed idolatry and were proved to be liars, their profession of faith being untrue. Their heritage is not the new heavens and the new earth, but their portion is the lake of fire that burns with the lake that burns with fire and sulfur, which is the second death. So there is a threat here. A warning to all of us to be sure that we do lay up our treasures in this new heaven and new earth and that we do persevere faithful and to the very end. Brothers and sisters, do you look forward to the new heavens and earth? Spend some time thinking about it today. Go outside and look at the world around you. And indeed, there is much beauty in this world, isn't there? It's fallen and it's been corrupted by sin. And and who knows what that has done, even to the physical appearance of the, the, the heavens and the earth as we now see them. But it is a beautiful place. And I want you to think about life on this planet with all that corrupts, without with all that that is sinful, with all that does cause us to weep and mourn. Think about life on this planet with all of that removed with God Himself dwelling with us in a most immediate way, filling all, this being His temple, 
we being his people and his priests. What a glorious thing. I, I hope that you look forward to the new heavens and earth. And I hope that you do believe that it is through Christ that the new heavens and earth are inherited, for he is the one who has earned all of this. Adam did not. He forfeited it. And we are born into this world under Adam and in him. But Christ earned these things for himself and for all who believe upon him. Are you in Christ? Are you trusting in him or are you still in and under the first Adam? And if you are in Christ, if you have him as your representative and as your head through faith in him, then let us persevere in Christ to the very end. And let us be diligent and careful to be sure that we persevere. Brothers and sisters, you should know by now how easy it is for us to be deceived by sin and to get off course and to go astray. Here is how Peter puts it in 2 Peter 3, 13 and 14. But according to his promise, he says, God's promise, we are waiting for new heavens and a new earth in which righteousness dwells. Therefore, beloved, since you are waiting for these things, be diligent to be found by him without spot or blemish and at peace. Let us bow together for a word of prayer. Father in heaven, we pray that you would strengthen our faith. We do not see these new heavens and this new earth, but you have promised them, Lord. You have given us a vision, a glimpse of them through John the Apostle in the book of Revelation. We thank you for it, Lord, but increase our faith that we would truly believe that this word is true, so much so that we live not for this world, but for the world to come. I pray for my brothers and sisters in Christ that they would indeed fight against sin, that they would cling closely to Christ Jesus onto the very end of their lives, Lord, and that they would lay up treasures in the world to come. Lord, help us to walk by faith always and not by sight. Lord, also make us faithful in the proclamation of this glorious gospel that through Jesus Christ, through faith in Him, there is the forgiveness of sins. Lord, I pray, Lord, for those we have contact with, friends and family and neighbors, co-workers who do not yet know Christ, may your Spirit use the gospel proclaimed to bring them also to faith in Jesus. These things we pray in His name and all of God's people say, Amen.